Father, we don't want to miss you. We don't want to miss a thing that you have to say to us. We don't want to miss any of the gifts you have to give to us. We don't want to even miss your voice of correction. Father, we want to not only hear you, but we want to be touched by you. We want your word to resonate in our hearts. So, Father, don't let us get distracted now. Don't let us get confused. But sharpen our minds and sharpen our thoughts and help us to connect the truth of your word into the everyday realities of our lives. Some of us need to just be healed today in our hearts. And it's going to be your word that does that. So we ask you to speak to us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let that sink in. Feel the weight of that for a second. Because when God inspired Paul to write those words in Romans chapter 3, he was thinking of you. He was thinking of me. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not exactly a fun, lighthearted way to start a sermon. I know. I get that. Maybe you, you're here today visiting for the first time and you're like, dang, this place is heavy. <laughs> uh, maybe you just sort of wandered in here going, man, what I need today is some encouragement and just to be lifted up. Um, hang in there because it gets better. But to really appreciate how much better it gets, we have to, we have to stop and ponder for a second how bad it really is. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're guilty. And, and if you go to a, a counselor and you tell him that you can't shake these feelings of guilt that just seem to plague you, he will do his best to help you get free of those guilty feelings. And he will talk to you about all the ways that you can, you can grapple with those feelings and the things that you should be doing to stop feeling so guilty. And he will tell you a new narrative that you can think about in your mind that will help you to realize, I shouldn't feel so guilty. It doesn't do me any good to feel guilty and all that kind of stuff. He will do his best to get you free from it because nobody likes to feel guilty. And nobody likes the shame that often accompanies the guilty feelings. There's a researcher, Dr. Brene Brown. She's one of the foremost authorities in the world on the subject of, of shame and guilt. She's written several books about it. <clears throat> and so in her research, she, she just took a giant poll of people and she asked them to fill in the blank. She asked them... Um, to describe their shame. And she got answers like this. She said, shame is, and you tell me the rest. These are some of the answers she got. Shame is getting laid off and having to tell my pregnant wife. Shame is having someone ask me, when are you due when I'm not pregnant? Shame is hiding the fact that I'm in recovery. Shame is raging at my kids. <clears throat> Shame is bankruptcy. Shame is my boss calling me an idiot in front of the client. Shame is my husband leaving me for my next door neighbor. Shame is my wife asking me for a divorce and telling me that she wants children, but not with me. Shame is my DUI. Shame is my infertility. Shame is telling me my fiance that my dad lives in France when he's actually in prison. Shame is internet porn. Shame is flunking out of school twice. 
Shame is hearing my parents fight through the walls and wondering if I'm the only one that feels this afraid. And then there's the kind of shame that, that comes from being made a victim. Shame is being physically abused. Shame is being sexually abused. Shame is being raped. Shame is being bullied. And, the, and it just goes on and on and on and on. And I wonder if you were to fill in the blank about shame, what would you say? If you, were to, if you were to really look deep in your heart and go, hey, where's my shame based? What is it that causes me to feel this burden, this, this uh, weight of shame in my life? I wonder how you might fill that in because we can all relate. We, we, we all have felt shame. We have all been guilty. And we've been talking about the baggage that so many of us carry and the weight that weighs us down and how we carry it around and we often don't feel like we can get rid of it. And, and this baggage comes in all shapes. It comes in all sizes. Uh, it, it affects the young and the old. It, it affects those who appear to have everything together and it, it affects those who appear to be falling apart. We, we're all carrying this baggage around. Jordan Dungey is the uh, son of Tony Dungy, the famous NFL coach. Tony Dungy's son, Jordan, was born with <clears throat> a congenital defect that makes it impossible for him to feel pain. He doesn't feel pain. And as a result of that, wonderful gift of not feeling pain. How many of you would like to not feel pain, right? As a, as a result of that, he's had over 30 surgeries due to injuries because he keeps hurting himself and he doesn't know it. It's been an absolute curse in his life in many ways, what most of us would think would be a blessing. But because he doesn't feel pain, he, he, he pushes too hard on things until his bones break. He, he doesn't understand, uh, you know, what to touch and what not to touch. And he has to be told, you know, if something is sharp, don't touch that. If something is hot, don't touch that because he doesn't feel pain. A lot of us would like to not feel pain because it's unpleasant, but pain serves us well. You, you have that super high fever, it's often a sign of infection. It's time to get to the doctor and get your life saved, right? You, you, you touch the hot stove and you immediately feel the heat and it hurts and you pull your hand back. That's good because if you don't feel the heat, you wouldn't pull your hand back and your hand would be destroyed. You have a toothache, it's time to go to the dentist. I know, how many love going to the dentist? <laughs> if you love going to the dentist, give me the name of your dentist. But you got to go, otherwise you're going to lose all your teeth. You sit there with that toothache and the rot just continues in your mouth. Guilty feelings can be the same way. Feeling guilty is not a bad thing if you're guilty. Let me say that again. Feeling guilty is not a bad thing if you're guilty. Now, it's always a problem when you feel guilty but you're not guilty. But feeling guilty is a gift to you when, in fact, you're guilty. That conviction of sin is God's way of protecting you and redirecting you. It's God's way of saying, hey, you're moving the wrong direction. You're hurting yourself. This is not going to go well. You got to stop. You got to reroute. You got to go the other direction. And so when you feel guilty because you're guilty, you should stop and thank God for that feeling of guilt as much as we don't like it. Now, false guilt is another issue. It is never a good thing to have false guilt. False guilt is, is when I've already uh, turned from my sin. I've already repented. I've already confessed. I, I'm no longer doing that. It's a thing in my past. Jesus says he washed it away with the blood that he shed on the cross. And yet, I still carry the weight of it. Instead of <clears throat> thinking to myself, I've done a bad thing, false guilt tells me I'm a bad person. 
I'm worthless. I have no value. There's no redeeming me. When in fact, Jesus says he's already offered us redemption. And if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you've already been set free. To walk in that guilt and shame is a bad thing. Now, let, let's, uh, let's get scriptural here because it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what the word of God says. So let's go to 1 John chapter 9. We're not in the gospel of John. We're in the epistles at the end of your Bible, way back in the back. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Let's make sure we get some truth laid because, because one of the great challenges that a lot of us face is that we've, we live with false guilt. We live with the shame that comes with false guilt. Even though we have done what God has asked us to do, even though Jesus has done what he has done for us, and we live thinking that we're still marked by that guilt. Not, I did this bad thing, but I am this bad person. It becomes the thing that characterizes us in our own hearts. Listen to what God says. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So let's not pretend that we haven't sinned. That's ridiculous. But if we're willing to own up to the fact that we sin, if we're willing to come to God and confess, that is to agree with God about our sin, to turn away from our sin and repentance and walk the other direction, it says he is faithful based on his faithfulness, his righteousness, his justice. He cleanses us from all sin and sets us free. Go to the book of Psalms. I love this, Psalm 103. In Psalm 103, we're going to look at several verses beginning in verse 1. Psalm 103, right in the middle of your Bible, just opening, you'll probably be in the book of Psalms. Psalm 103, verse 1. Listen to this. This is one of my favorite psalms. Guys, if you want to memorize a psalm, memorize this one. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Okay, we're going to list some of the benefits of the Lord, knowing the Lord. Verse 3. Who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Step down, step down to verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. He's the one who pardons all our iniquities. He is the one who heals all of our sins. He is the one who redeems our life from the pit. Now, I say this, and some of you may be going, ah, you're making a big deal about this. I don't feel like I'm living in a pit. But there may be a person sitting next to you, in front of you, or behind you, who has been in a pit for as long as they can remember. And some of us are Christians. We, we've, we know Jesus. We've... we've built our life around the fact that Jesus is the singular hope that we have. And yet, we walk around in discouragement. We walk around in brokenheartedness. We walk around in fear. We walk around in pain. We, our countenance is low. Our shoulders sag. The weight of our sin still sits upon us. And when that's true, we have been listening to the wrong voice. Because the word of God says that if you're a follower of Christ, 
If you are a child of God, if the Lord lives in your heart, if you have submitted your life to Jesus, then he has pardoned all your iniquities. He has set you free, redeemed your life from the pit. And here's what I have to say, church. If you're a Christian and you're still living in the pit, I have great news for you. You don't have to hope he will redeem you. You don't have to hope he will pull you out. You don't have to wait for the day when finally he'll he'll lift your burden. He has all already done it you just have to live in that truth and the enemy whispers in our ear says it's not true it's it's true for her but it's not true for you what you've done is so bad and you did it multiple times I mean you confessed and you said sorry and you said you weren't going to do it again and you did it again and you did it again. In fact, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a real roadblock for you. you. You keep falling in the same holes. I think this is true for most of us as Christians. It's so amazing how, how every one of us is different. We have a different set of potholes that we tend to step in. And, but, but we step in them over and over and over and over again. And, and some, of you, some of you just are caught up in jealousy. And, and it seems like you just get jealous all the time. And, and, and any opportunity to, to wish you had what he has, or wish you had what she has, or feel bad about where you're at, it just, and you go, I know I'm supposed to repent. I'm not supposed to be jealous. I'm supposed to live with joy. I'm supposed to be thankful. But you keep falling in that jealousy pit. For some of us, it's lust. For some of us, it's dishonesty. For some of us, it's fear. But we just keep living in these things, stepping in the same pits. I just want us to understand he did not design your life that way. Jesus said, I came that you would have life and that more abundantly. If you're living in the pit, you don't have to live there anymore. Romans 8 verses 1 and 2, we we talked about this passage uh, last week. You don't have to turn there. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So again, if your baggage is about condemnation, that's not from God. If you've already received Christ into your heart, if you've already begun to submit your life to Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're still feeling condemned, if you are, as Paul says, in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. He has already declared you free. He has already set you free. So I'm talking about this false guilt that some of us feel. Now listen, there's a difference between real guilt and false guilt. And if you're feeling real guilt because you're really guilty, you need to deal with that. And we're going to talk about how to deal with that. But if what you're dealing with is false guilt, I want you to know that voice that keeps whispering in your ear, you'll never be good enough, you will never be accepted, you will never get past this, you will never be over this, you are marked by your sin, you are marked by your past, you are marked by what you've endured, and that is going to define your life. That voice is not the voice of God, it's the voice of Satan himself. We got to know the difference. I could go on and on with these verses that talk about how he's taken away our guilt and shame, but the point's been made. If you're a follower of Jesus, your debt has already been paid. Only God can rightfully judge you. And he's already declared you to have been made clean, justified, sanctified, purified, glorified. Those are the words Christ uses to describe us. So let me put this as clearly as I can. If you're a Christian and you're carrying around a lot of guilt and shame for sins that you've already confessed, that is not the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit. It's the condemning voice of the enemy. False guilt can drag you down, pull you down away from Jesus and the victorious life he died to give you. The conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit, here's a way to tell. The conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit always draws you toward God. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It draws us to him. When he convicts us of sin, it is with open arms that he says, and I'll repeat this probably every week for the next several weeks, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. 
He's come to set us free. So the real issue is not whether you feel guilty. We all do from time to time because we are all guilty from time to time. The real issue is how you respond to those feelings of guilt. And today we're going to talk about three different ways that you can respond when you are guilty, okay? We took the false guilt thing. We talked about that. Let's set that aside. Let's talk about when you are guilty. I know that probably doesn't apply to most of you, but... Just imagine, probably applies to the person sitting next to you. <laughs> the first way that I want to talk about that we can respond when we're guilty is found in the book of 1 Samuel. So take your Bibles, go to the Old Testament, find 1 Samuel, and I'm going to give you a hint, it comes right before 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 13. If you're not real familiar with all the books and where they're at, no problem. There's a table of contents right in the beginning, look it up. 1 Samuel chapter 13, and let me give you the background, okay? The nation is Israel. Their king is a guy named Saul. They begged God for a king. God said, I am your king. They said, yeah, but we want a king with skin on. We want a king we can see. We want a king like all the other nations, somebody with a palace, somebody with a throne, somebody with a scepter. We want a king like that. And he said, I am your king. And they said, I know, but we want a human king. And finally, God said, you want a human king? You got a human king. His name is Saul. Follow him. And this guy, Saul... Um, you know, he doesn't seem to be an altogether bad guy. It's just that he doesn't seem to be very mature spiritually. And he struggles again and again in 1 Samuel, and we see those struggles. But, but here in chapter 13, this is kind of a well-known story where, where uh, the prophet Samuel has, has told Saul, listen, um, here's what you're going to do. We're about to go to war with the Philistines, and God is going to deliver them into our hands. But here's how it's going to happen. On this day, I want you to have your army gathered in this place, and I will show up in the morning, and I will lead us in a worship service. And we will dedicate ourselves to the Lord. We will make a sacrifice to the Lord, and I will pray over you and send you into battle. But look what happens. Chapter 13 Beginning in verse 5, 1 Samuel 13. Now the Philistines, that's the enemy, assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. Now when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed... Then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. So already as the Philistine army is gathering, the Hebrew army is getting scared. And they're beginning to desert. One by one, they're sneaking away. They're sneaking away in small groups. They're hiding behind rocks. They're digging holes. They're hiding in caves. They are leaving the battle because they see that the odds are against them. Verse 7. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people uh, followed him trembling. Now, he waited seven days according to the appointed time by Samuel. This is what Samuel told him to do. Wait seven days. When I come, we'll do this. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Now, you can imagine his situation. He's looking going, we have almost no chance to begin with. And now the army is deserting and I can't keep these guys here. And Samuel's not here yet. And so what does he do? Verse 8, or verse 9. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you've acted foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over the people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. 
I, I want you to notice here what Samuel said. He, all he did was when, uh, what Saul said, all he did was when Samuel didn't show up, he went ahead and led the worship service. There's just one problem. He was not a prophet. He was not a priest. He was not called by God or qualified by God to represent God in that context. And so, feeling afraid, not knowing what to do, thinking that he had to use his own ingenuity and his own strength and the strength of his men who were leaving one by one, he said, I better do something. You know what? If I was in his spot, I might have done exactly what he did. And of course, he makes the offering, leads the worship service, and as soon as it's over, guess what? He looks up and here comes Samuel, right? Isn't that all how it always works? And Samuel walks up and says, what have you done? And, and look at how he answers. I saw, this is verse 11, I saw that the people were scattering from me. So, so first of all, this is not on me. This is on the people. If they had stayed, we would have been fine. And that you did not come at the appointed time. So, so before you point a finger at me, Samuel, how about you point a finger at yourself because maybe if you get a new watch and start showing up on time, we wouldn't have to do this kind of stuff. So the people were unfaithful, and you were unfaithful, and the Philistines were pressing in on us. Therefore, verse 12, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. I didn't want to do it, but I just had to because of you, because of the Philistines, because of the people. You made me do it. You made me disobey God. How many times in my life have I disobeyed God because I just felt the pressure that I, I got to do something here and I did what my flesh told me to do? I did what my own mind said to do in spite of what God said. How many times with our finances do we not trust God and follow his teaching and, and instead we try to handle our finances ourselves and we wonder why our finances are always all jacked up? How many times have we made our relationships about us and, and what we want and what our flesh wants and what makes us feel better instead of what we know God wants our relationships to be and not trusted God enough to wait for him. I, there's probably a hundred ways we could describe this. All I'm saying is I get it. I can relate to what Saul did and that doesn't change a thing. He had plenty of excuses. He had plenty of fingers to point. There was all kinds of blame shifting. It wasn't me. It wasn't my fault. I had no choice. He was dodging responsibility. He was covering up what he did. And the results were tragic. God said, you're not going to endure as a king. And he removed him from his throne. Here's the thing. You can be mad at me if you want. But here's the truth. If the Lord is convicting you of guilt, it's because you're guilty. Stop making it somebody else's fault. Because as long as you make it somebody else's fault, now you're the victim. Now there's nothing you can do. This is being done to you. You're just stuck. Somebody else has done this to you. You're marked. You're controlled. Listen, your sin is on you. But here's the good news. Jesus took it on him. So, so we don't have to live with this blame shifting and finger pointing. When God comes to our heart and says, listen, there's something wrong in your life and I want to talk to you about it and it needs to change, whether that's in your prayer time or in your time of the word or a brother or sister in Christ comes along and says, listen, I got to talk to you about this. It makes me uncomfortable because I'm not perfect, but I see this going on in your life and it doesn't seem right. Listen, if you're guilty, that's the voice of God. Listen to his voice. People try all sorts of other approaches. Man, we hear the voice of God, don't like what he's saying, stop reading your Bible. <laughs> you come on a Sunday morning and the preacher's preaching right at you, stop coming on Sunday mornings. 
You, you can't sleep at night because you lay there thinking about your guilt. Take some sleeping pills. A lot of things people do to cover up the voice of God. And when God is convicting you of sin, it's because he's trying to lift the baggage off of you, not to put more on you. And we have to trust him. We have to confess. We have to repent. We have to expect our relationship with God to be made right when we trust him and do it his way. But unfortunately, we don't always choose to do that. There's a second thing that we sometimes choose to do in response to our guilt conviction. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. Let's look at it there. Go all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2. By the way, uh, we, we have a few weeks in this series while you're turning there. And the next thing we're going to do on Sunday mornings is we're going to preach through the book of Genesis. So I just want to encourage you, maybe start reading the book of Genesis. Um, the Lord's got some things he wants to say to us through there. But here we are in Genesis chapter 2. And I'm not going to go deep into this because I am going to spend more time on it when we start to study Genesis. But, but in Genesis chapter 2, let me just give you the background. God has created everything. Everything is good. He's given man his wife. And, and uh, he's placed him in the garden. And in the garden, there's all this fruit and vegetables. And there's a tree that they're not allowed to eat. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he tells them, don't eat from this tree and, and um, in Genesis 2.25, the end of the creation narrative, here's what it says to just close the story. Genesis 2.25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What an interesting way to choose to describe paradise. It just boggles the mind. He could have said, and the man and his wife were both joyful and fulfilled. He, he could have said, and the man and his wife were both happy and satisfied. There's a million things he could have said, but instead he says, they're naked and unashamed. Sounds like a reality show. See, there's this show on TV called Naked and Afraid, and, and they just, people go off into the wilderness with literally nothing, and they have to survive. And they said, what should we call this show? Let's call it Naked and Afraid. Because every time you're naked, in a, outside of your own shower, you're afraid. <laughs> right? <laughs> There's just something about that. And, and yet here in the scripture, it says naked and unashamed. That's how God describes paradise. They were naked and unashamed. Perfect world, no sin, no death. Perfect relationship with God. Perfect relationship with each other. No guilt, no shame, no clothes. But then something terrible happened. The serpent tempted them. They chose to disobey God. Chapter 3, verse 6. We pick up the story there. You know the story. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Naked and ashamed. The instantaneous change that took place when they rebelled against God was that they remained naked, no change there, but now they were ashamed. Now everything was awkward. Now it was uncomfortable. Now they felt at risk in their nakedness. Now they felt uncomfortable in their nakedness. Now they felt a need to hide. Now they felt a need to cover up. They had always been naked. It never bothered them before. 
Now, now, you know, we look at this nakedness issue and we see the husband and wife and there's all kinds of implications for the marital relationship and all that kind of stuff. But I think we need to look at the broader picture here. Nakedness here is symbolic of vulnerability. They, there is nothing between them and each other. There is nothing between them and God. They're, they're completely vulnerable, but they never felt vulnerable before. It never felt dangerous to be naked before. It never felt shameful to be naked before. In fact, there was no such thing as shame until then for human beings. God created us to be interdependent. God created us to trust one another without fear. God created us to trust Him without fear. Nothing to cover up. No reason to hide. Peaceful, fearless. But we lose all that when we bring genuine guilt into the picture. Now there's reason for shame. Now there's reason for fear. Now there's reason to resist vulnerability. Now there's reason to put something between me and you. Now there's reason to put something me and God. Now there's reason to hide. You see, guilt and shame have a way of ruining relationships. We become less authentic because of guilt and shame. We become less trusting because of guilt and shame. We become less vulnerable because of guilt and shame. And it happens between us and other people, the ones we're supposed to be closest to. And it happens between us and God. We start to cover ourselves up. We start to hide. We start to be inauthentic. We start to be a uh, elusive and defensive and our relationships with each other and our relationship with God begin to crumble. We always talk about how silly it was for Adam and Eve to hide from God, right? Hide from an all-knowing God? What are you, stupid? We always talk about how silly that is, but I don't think they really thought they could hide from God. I just think they felt they couldn't face him. You ever felt that way? You know you can't get away from God. It's just that you can't face Him. So you turn away. Guilt and shame will do that to you. It's a lot of weight to carry. So Saul tried blame shifting and making excuses. Adam and Eve tried to hide. But there's a third option. And that one's illustrated in the life of David. Now, now David... Um, there's so many famous stories about David in the Bible. He's very, very well known to us. Uh, one of the famous stories is more infamous than famous. We know about his great leap into sin. We know about the day that he went up on the roof and he looked and saw this beautiful woman bathing and he said, I have to have her. Never mind the fact that he was already married. Never mind the fact that he already had um, uh, a kingdom to lead and all of that. Never mind the fact that he had such authority and power over everybody in the kingdom. He was going to abuse that power and authority to get what his flesh wanted. And he had her come over to the house and he had sex with her, committed adultery with her. She also was married. She became pregnant. And when she became pregnant, he realized, oh no, I have to cover this up. Her husband was away fighting in the war for David. So she, he brought him back, tried to make it look like he had slept with his wife, but he refused to even go near his wife. He finally sent him back to the field and he had him murdered. So, so David went from doing just great ruling the people, to committing adultery and murder all in one fell swoop. And at first he did what most of us try to do. He did what Adam and Eve did. He, he tried to cover up his sin. He tried to hide from God and others. I've done that. You've probably done that. But God loved him too much to let him stay in his hiding place. Let me say that again, because when you're in your hiding place and God comes poking his stick into your hiding place, you get mad. God loved him enough to not let him stay in his hiding place. And he sent Nathan to him, the prophet. And Nathan told him everything that he had done, said, God knows everything that you've done. 
And when Nathan spoke, David was convicted of his sin. He felt those feelings of guilt, the conviction that comes from God, and he knew it was from God, and his heart broke. And by the way, that hurts a lot. To actually face God and, and look him in the eye, so to speak, and own up, that hurts a lot. Facing your sin is painful. I remember when my kids were little, I won't tell you which kid it was, but it was one of the male children in our family. <laughs> and, and they were, he was like three or four, maybe. And, uh, and I came home unexpectedly. The house that we lived in at the time, it had, it had a living room, and that connected to this family room here, which connected the dining room and kitchen, which had a doorway that led back to that living room. It was like a big loop. And I walked in the house thinking, you know, what a glorious day. I walk into the house and I see my son run past me with a terrified look on his face. And I look up and see his mother chasing him with a wooden spoon. <laughs> There's literally a foot race going on in this house. I don't know how long it had been going on. She looked kind of tired. He didn't look tired at all. He's running from his mother who is yelling at him to stop, but he knows what will happen if he stops, so he keeps running. And I walk into that situation, and I see my kid run by. I go, oh, isn't that cute? And I look up and see his mother and the look on her face. And I prayed in that moment a prayer of thanksgiving that she was mad at him and not me. <laughs> Because that is not a look you want to see. And she's chasing him. And I just put up my hand and said, stop. And when he came around, I grabbed him. And he stopped running. His feet kept moving, but now he was in the air. And I calmed him down. We took him to his room. I sent his mother to therapy. <laughs> I took him to his room. After having learned what had happened and how he had disobeyed and then run from his mother, and I looked him in the eye, I got down on a knee, and I said, son, I'm so disappointed in what you've done. And immediately the tears began to flow. Because when, when your heart is soft and you recognize that you're guilty, God touches your heart. And as those tears began to flow, restoration became possible. Forgiveness became available. And everything changed. David could have made excuses. He could have hidden away and refused to see Nathan. He could have had Nathan killed for Nathan saying what he did. But what we're really blessed to be able to see the behind-the-scenes part of the story. It's in Psalm 51. Okay, turn your Bibles to Psalm 51. And we get to find out what was going on in David's heart, and we get to find out what was going on in David's prayer life at this crucial moment of his life. Because Psalm 51 has a heading which says, uh, For the choir director, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this is what David did. He got alone with God, and he wrote his prayer. And the prayer that he wrote is Psalm 51. This is what David said to God. Verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and the hidden part. You will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and 
blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain, with, uh, sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That man, David, David the adulterer, David the murderer, he is the only person in history Honored by the fact that scripture says he is the man after God's own heart. He could be known as a murderer. He could be known as an adulterer. I mean, Saul just, just messed up in the field of battle and, and he, had to, he had to wear the shame for the rest of his life. David could have been known as a murderer and adulterer. He could, have, he could have been known as a liar. He did a lot of that too. He could have been known as a manipulator. He did a lot of that too. But God highly honored David so much that he allowed the Messiah to come through his lineage. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of Man. Jesus, the Son of David. That's how the scripture refers to him. Although David dealt with a lot of hardship, some of it as a direct result of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. He always knew the joy of the Lord. He always had that close relationship with God and God blessed him and used him to change the world forever. Now think about it. Who was more guilty? Saul who slightly disobeyed one order about a minor military issue? Adam and Eve who ate a piece of fruit that didn't belong to them? Or David, the murderer and adulterer. Get this straight. Now, I'm almost done, okay? So if you're, if you're tuning out, tune in. Get this straight. It is not about our perception of the severity of the sin. We are all in the same boat as far as that is concerned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us has a finger to point at anybody else. We're all in the same boat. The ground is level at the cross. You may think your sin is so much worse. You may think your sin is no big deal. But I'm telling you that for all of us, every one of our sins was so big that Jesus had to go to the cross to pay for it. We're all in the same boat. The question is not, have you sinned? It's, it's, it's about our willingness to come to grips with our sin. It's about our willingness to come to God on His terms and not our own. And to receive the forgiveness and cleansing that's only available in Christ. We are all guilty. That is not in question. The real question facing each of us today is what are you going to do with your guilt? What are you going to do with your guilt? Cover it up? Make excuses? Blame others? Try to hide from God? Hope he never finds you? Or will you respond to the call of Jesus? Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For some of you, the real issue today is when are you going to put down the baggage of your guilt and shame? When are you going to let go of that which Jesus has already dealt with. Jesus died to pay the price for your sin. And when he died, 
he spoke these words. It is finished. Let's stand and pray together. Just have a moment with our heads bowed. Letting the word of God sink in. And I just want to ask you to think for a second. Is there some sin or guilt that you're letting weigh you down even though you've already confessed and repented? Are you believing the lies of the enemy over the truth of God? Are you feeling that somehow you have to add something in your own suffering to the suffering that Jesus endured to pay for your sin? If so, I want to encourage you to just talk to God in your own heart and accept his forgiveness. I mean, really accept it. Let it permeate your being. And and maybe you stand here today and you've never accepted his forgiveness. Those feelings of guilt that you feel are because you're guilty. You're still guilty. You haven't allowed the blood of Jesus to wash all of that away by submitting your life to Jesus and accepting his free gift. Guys, it's not by works. There's nothing you can do to get rid of the guilt. It only comes from Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, you're here today because he wanted you to know that. And maybe, just maybe, today's the day you take your hands off your own life and you put it in the hands of Jesus. Lay down your burden and accept his yoke. You do that in your own heart. You confess to him that you're a sinner. You, you ask him to become your Lord and you start to follow him. That's all. There's nothing magical. There's nothing mystical about it. But if you do that, I promise you, he'll respond and he'll give you new life. Father, today we ask you to please drill deeper into our hearts. Those things that we have allowed to um, weigh us down, the guilt and shame that we were never meant to carry. Father, we give it to you. We thank you that, that you've come and and paid the price and made it possible for us to live shame-free. Father, we've, we've known shame, mankind, since the fall. But you said that you've come to give us life. That sin brought death, but you came to give us life. And so, Father, help us to trust you for that. And help us to walk in the newness of life and no longer be weighed down by guilt and unnecessary shame. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, guys. Uh, We have some goodies out on the patio for you. And really the big reason to go out on the back patio is for the fellowship. So go meet somebody you don't know. Go right through those doors out to your right. And uh, we'll see you out on the patio. We'll enjoy some time of fellowship together. God bless you.